Welcome to the Religious Feminism Podcast. I'm your host, April Young Bennett, and today we're doing something a little different on the podcast. Usually, I interview a feminist activist or theologian or historian, and this week, instead of doing that, what I'm going to do is I'm going to share with you some clips from some interviews where other people on other radio shows and podcasts have interviewed me. I recently released a book. It's called Ask a Suffragist, Stories and Wisdom from America's First Feminists. I began this podcast because I myself am a feminist activist, and I wanted to learn more from people of other faith communities about how they are working for equality within their faith community. And I wanted to be able to use that information to help me be a better activist. Likewise, I wanted to learn more about the feminists from the past, the people who came before us and who helped us to get to this place where we are now and what they can teach us about how we can be better activists. I recently released my book and I've been on a lot of radio shows and podcasts lately talking about that book. And so I thought that for this episode, I would let you hear me being interviewed by other people and hear what I have to say and get to know me a little bit better. In this first clip, Laura Cheadle from the radio show Flaunt, Build Your Dreams, Live Your Sparkle, asks me about how I became an author. I will link to the full episode of every clip that I share on this podcast so that if you enjoyed the clip and would like to hear the entire interview, you can go ahead and click through the show notes and find that link and listen to the whole thing. Here we go. Can you tell me and tell the listeners a little bit more about how your writing moved from just blogging to writing an entire book? Yes. So as I became a Mormon feminist blogger, that led to me meeting more people who cared about feminism within my religious community. It led to me becoming more involved in activist causes where I was actually putting on demonstrations, organizing people to try to make change within our faith community. And as I did that, it was, it was an exciting time when I first started. There were many people, we were, we were kind of doing things that hadn't been done before within our faith community. And so we spent a lot of time brainstorming together. Um, we weren't literally together. We were virtually together most of the time. We were having long rolling meetings over the internet where we would just brainstorm ideas and we'd try lots of those things and we'd go back and forth just constantly. It was very exciting, also very exhausting. <laughs> and it occurred to me that maybe we were reinventing the wheel a bit. <laughs> I wondered, had someone else already resolved some of these issues, solved some of these problems that we were looking at? And I started to study more. And I started back, I looked back to where I, from my perspective, feminism began. I looked back to first wave feminism or the suffrage movement in the United States to see what did they do back then? How did they resolve these problems that they were encountering? And some of those problems seemed very similar to the problems I was encountering as an activist. And so I started out, I was just studying this so that I would be a smarter activist, a better informed activist. And after a while, I realized, 
I've learned a lot and this is good information that other people should know too. And I decided to put this book together. It's called Ask a Suffragist. And it's almost like a conversation with our foremothers where I begin each chapter with a question I would have as a modern activist for them if I could, you know, just pick their brains for a minute. And I ask them a question, for example, how do I make my voice heard? And then I respond by actually looking at their lives and finding out how they did it, how they made themselves heard. Wow, that's amazing. How, how did you get the information about them? Was that kind of hard to find or was that fairly easy? It was a little bit difficult. Part of the reason I wrote the book is because when I first started on this journey, I didn't want to, well, study all the things I ended up studying. I was in a hurry. I was an activist. And I thought, I just want to find one very simple book that's to the point, that's very focused on activist issues. And I just want to read that. And I want to read it fast so that I can get on my way and get back to work. And I didn't find the right resource. I didn't find a book that was like that, that was entertaining and quick and that talked about diverse suffragists all in one place and that really focused on what activists care about, building relationships, um, changing the world, basically. I, I didn't find that right away. So instead, I started reading virtually everything. I read a lot of history books. I a, read a lot of biographies. And then I delved in deeper. And I started looking for people's diaries, their personal memoirs, their letters to each other to actually see what they actually said and actually read their, their, their own words, what they were actually saying at the time, what they were thinking at the time, sometimes before they had figured out what the end point was going to be, you know, before, not just, not just like a history book, looking back and saying, now we know that this worked and this didn't. But what were they thinking at the time when they were brainstorming like I was with my friends and my associates? Wow. I there's so much that's exciting about that because you're right. An activist is an activist and it really doesn't matter what your cause is. It's my guess that a lot of the a lot of the process, a lot of the ideas, a lot of the things that work and don't work are probably pretty similar across the years, across the generations and that's a really good idea. <laughs> Right. I think sometimes we think that, I know that when I started in activism, I thought this way. I thought, oh, we're completely different today. Now we have the internet. The internet has changed everything. We can communicate so much easier. Our technology is so much better. But really, as an activist, if you really want to change hearts and minds, the things you need to do aren't that different from things people were doing hundreds of years ago. You've got to develop relationships with people that you don't agree with. You've got to persuade people who can't see your point of view. You've got to get people to listen to you and be willing to talk to you. So there's so much that we need to do now that are still the same as things we were doing a long time ago. Right. That absolutely makes sense. Now, the next step, and I'm really curious about this, the next step of flaunt is L, and that's laugh out loud. <laughs> when I hear the word activist, and when I hear the word feminist, even though I consider myself an activist and I consider myself a feminist, I still see the stereotypical image of the angry feminist, you know, the, the diehard, masculine, drive-hard feminist and activist. And although I know that's not the case, I would love to hear your take on how you can be a feminist and an activist and you can still laugh out loud. You can still have humor 
and families and relationships and love the other side as well. I'd love your take on that. Absolutely. I like to tell people that an activist is an optimist. Hmm. I think that the stereotype is that activists are angry. Well, in my experience, having been an activist, I am an activist, and having worked with so many activists, activists are some of the most optimistic people in the world. They're people who actually believe that the world can become better, that things can change. Um, there aren't too many people who believe that. There's lots of cynical people out there, but those aren't activists because activists really are going out there and trying to make change because they believe it's possible. So these are very optimistic people we're talking about. And, they, and we have a lot of fun together. One thing I do within my faith community, my Mormon feminist community, is that every year we have what we call Feminist Mormon Girls Camp. And its main purpose is just to unwind and have fun and get to know each other better. Where we gather, we go camping together, and we do what we call subversive crafts. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which are basically what you might do at a more traditional girls camp, but, but with kind of feministy themes. <laughs> My next clip comes from an interview with Victor Furman on the radio show Destination Unlimited. He asked me about men's role in the feminist movement, which is actually a big part of my book. Many of the first feminists in America were men. And largely the reason why they became interested in feminism is because they cared about the issues women cared about, like abolition, that women wanted to get involved in. And they realized that they needed more hands. They needed more people. They needed, it was all hands on deck. There was no reason to exclude women who were smart and bright and energetic and willing to contribute to the cause. And so there were certain men like Samuel May and William Lloyd Garrison and Frederick Douglass who very desperately wanted to involve women and they became passionate supporters of women's rights because they wanted women involved in these important causes that they cared about. Unfortunately, there were also other men who were worried that if women got involved, it would just upset the order of things and all their work that they had been doing would somehow come crashing down. And so, unfortunately, there were also very ma many men who were abolitionists who opposed involving women and opposed women's rights. So it went both ways. One person that's very interesting to me is Arthur Tappan. And the reason why is because Arthur Tappan was both a wonderful advocate for women's rights and a huge problem when it came to women's rights. When it came to the issue of women in education, he was a passionate supporter of education for women. And in fact, there was a time when Prudence Crandall was a woman who tried to start a school for black female teenagers in Connecticut. And she ran into so much hatred and vitriol. And Arthur Tappan kind of swooped in and came to the rescue. She was actually arrested because she was teaching black teenagers in her school. And Arthur Tappan came in and he was a wealthy philanthropist. He had money and he funded her defense, her legal defense. And thanks to that funding, they did win. He also funded an entire public relations campaign for her. So he, he was an active supporter of the right of young black women to get an education. However, when it came to the Abolition Society, he was not so great. In fact, he exited the Abolition Society the first time they voted for a woman to be an officer. 
Why? He just didn't see that as their place. He thought that it was great for women to get an education, but not so great for them to use it by telling men what to do. Mm. I still know many modern people who share this attitude about educated women, unfortunately. This last clip is from the Critical Mass Radio Show, which is a show about empowerment in the workplace. And in this bit, Sean Andrews asked me about my work as an activist. So, so you have a really interesting background at, at sitting at the intersection of the science, uh, your media experience, and, and your activism work. So uh, tell me a little bit more about your work as an activist and an advocate for gender equality. Absolutely. That began several years ago. It began mostly within my own faith community. I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. People commonly refer to us as Mormons. Mm-hmm. And I love my faith. I love my faith community. But one big problem with it, it is, is that it is very patriarchal. Um, we have a male-only priesthood. And not only that, do not only do we only ordain men to the ministry, but we ordain every male member of our church to the ministry as soon as they turn 12. So the result is that every male member of our church outranks every female member. Hmm. And so it is concerning. It leads to lots of negative side effects. And I started being concerned about that several years ago, started raising my voice on that issue, started blogging about that issue as soon as I encountered other women and other groups that were concerned about this. Hmm. A few years after I started blogging, I helped begin an activist organization called Ordain Women, where we organized demonstrations and marches and campaigns to encourage our church leaders to ordain women to the ministry that received a lot of national attention and a lot of negative attention from our local church leaders, Hmm. as can be expected. But it was a great opportunity to raise my voice and actually use some of those skills that I had garnered over the years through my work experience, learning how to talk with the media for a cause that I really cared about. Mm. Now, and how has that been going? Have you finding that there's a, there's a lot of other women that are part of your cause? Or are you, or, uh, I should say... Are you coming with resistance still, or are you, are you finding that people are more accepting of, of your message and what you're trying to do? It's a long-term project. Mm-hmm. I don't anticipate that my church is going to ordain women anytime soon, but then that's another thing about knowing your history, is I know that most of these big changes were long-term projects. And a nice thing about learning the history, like you look at the suffrage movement, it started about 100 years before the 19th Amendment. And even after the 19th Amendment passed, there were still women who, even though they were technically supposed to have voting rights, couldn't vote because of discriminatory laws based on race or ethnicity. So it took even longer after that before these women gained the right to vote. So you look at the history and you see some projects take a really long time, but you also learn how to see the progress along the way. You learn how to see how there's these incremental changes that happen because people are are advocating for that one big change that they really care about. And that's what I'm seeing a lot within my religious community. We still don't ordain women, and I still believe we should, and we're still fighting for that. 
But there have been lots of other incremental changes that have happened along the way, I believe, as a result of us raising our voices and raising attention to the issue of equality between men and women within our faith. And I'm really excited about the smaller incremental change that have ha- changes that have happened along the way. Fantastic. I guess with any movement or worthy cause, it's always baby steps, isn't it? It is. Yeah, yeah. There's always baby steps. That said, you shouldn't always just ask for baby steps. Sometimes it's just best to ask for what you actually want. (laughs) And maybe all you'll get is baby steps. But if you ask for what you actually want, I think that brings you closer even to accomplishing those incremental changes than if you only ask for the bare minimum. Yes. Yeah, it's a great point. If you would like to hear the complete interview, please go to the episode notes and find the link. I'm going to conclude this podcast by sharing with you the preface to my book, Ask a Suffragist, Stories and Wisdom from America's First Feminists. This comes from the audiobook. The book is available in audiobook. It's also available in hardcover, in large print, and as a Kindle book. And I will include links to all of those in the episode notes. So if you'd like to get the book, and of course I encourage you to get it, please check out the episode notes. Preface. Is not this a wonderful time and era long to be remembered? Susan B. Anthony, 1854. If 19th century suffragists were still alive today, watching us relax in our blue jeans while machines wash our dishes and laundry, they might be tempted to mock us with tweets about our hashtag modern world problems. But they would also see how far we haven't come. Much has changed in the United States of America since the battle for women's suffrage. But human nature remains, and so does patriarchy. A new generation of feminists is fighting to overcome overt and subtle sexism across the nation and the world and we could learn a thing or two from the feminists who came before us. I started researching the suffragist movement to inform my own activism. I wanted to know the suffragists better because I was walking a similar path, nearly 200 years later. And I wanted to know more than what they said and did. I wanted to know who they were. What ignited their passion for women's rights? How did they devote their lives to such exhausting, and often disappointing work. How did they balance their activism with their families, careers, and personal lives? American suffragists weren't called suffragettes, by the way. Which is too bad, because suffragettes is so much easier for me to say without sounding like I have a lisp. In spite of the name, I can relate to suffragists. Like me, they were activists who nursed babies and pursued careers. Suffragists were deliberate in their efforts to change society for the women who would follow them, but they weren't necessarily trying to live their everyday lives as examples. After coming home from their public advocacy efforts, they were minding their own business, attending to their own love lives, families, and occupations, with no thought that a busybody like me might examine their personal affairs someday. I don't doubt that several of them would raise an eyebrow, if they knew I was prying into their personal lives to find something to emulate. But I am doing it anyway. Suffragists left us with a much less sexist world, but we still have work to do. If we can draw morality tales from the lives of the Founding Fathers, learning from stories about them that probably weren't even true, 
Yes, George Washington, I'm talking about you and your cherry tree. How much more could we learn from the real, lived experiences of those who founded Liberty for Women after the Founding Fathers neglected to? And anyhow, they certainly won't object at this point. This book shares the stories and wisdom of some of the first Americans to suggest that women should have equal rights with men. They fought for equality in the 1830s to the 1860s, when the idea was radical and its supporters were vilified. From the comfort of the 21st century, it can be tempting to skip ahead from this inhospitable beginning to 1920, when their efforts were rewarded with a 19th Amendment, granting most women the right to vote. The women who lived through this era had no such luxury. Most of these women didn't live to see the 19th Amendment's passage. None of them were around when the voting rights promised by the 19th Amendment finally became a reality for Native American and Southern Black women decades later. Let's sit with them for a while in their own time, when victories were few and the ultimate outcome was unknown. We should be able to relate, since we are at that same uncertain place with many of the modern causes we support today. How did suffragists cope with such challenging work through so many decades of minimal success? What kept them going? What can we learn from their accomplishments? How can we avoid their mistakes? Let's meet them and see what they can teach us. <laughs>